Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Cognitive Dissidents. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Uh, Rob and I recorded our weekly chat on geopolitics and markets a day earlier than normal. So we recorded on Wednesday, December 7th. Um, I'm not sure if this is going to come out on Thursday or Friday, but just FYI there. Um, Otherwise, we're up to 86 uh, reviews or comments or likes on the podcast. Um, Would love to get to 100 by the end of the year. So if you can help us out, if you haven't done so already, that would be great. Otherwise, thanks for listening. You can write to me at jacob at cognitive.investments if you have thoughts about this podcast or have questions about what we do at CI. Um, Otherwise, no more from me. Cheers and see you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. Uh, Before we get started, um, I... Rob, one of our most loyal listeners got mad at me last week because you were talking about baguettes and UNESCO and Paris and this, that, and the other thing. And uh, shout out to Molly, Belgard Bakery, really big supporter of, of the podcast and all of my podcast endeavors from the beginning. So sorry about that, Molly. If you are in New Orleans, you should go check out Belgard Bakery. They make a fabulous baguette. I usually get one once a week myself with... Uh, um, it's really nice. Goes great with any kind of cheese you want. And if you're in New Orleans and you've rated or reviewed the podcast, I will even buy you a cup of coffee in person myself at Belgard if uh, if you're if you can prove that you actually rated or reviewed the podcast. So how's that, Molly? Don't get mad at me anymore, okay? <laughs> wow. Um, and Rob, when, whenever you're in New Orleans, we'll have to have you. We'll have to bring you to Belgard and see if it holds up to your uh, to your Parisian baguettes. Although I know you said you're not such a baguette fan. You're messing around in other weird. Uh, French. No, no, I am a baguette French. fan, but oh, the, but that's French. the that's the stereotypical thing that one has to do. You know, Americans who come back from France, they they act like assholes and say how bad the food is, and you know, oh my God, what what is in this bread? And I, I I'm looking forward to doing that. That's gonna be <laughs> that's gonna be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're off to a great start. Um, why don't we? We've got a we've got a bunch of sort of little things. That- week we've got some european union drama to to talk about we've got some iran drama to talk about japan china brazil we're going to go all over the place um but rob i haven't asked you just sort of your thoughts about sort of where the u.s is from a macro perspective in a couple weeks so why don't i just ask you as we roll into the end of the year how are you feeling about u.s macro has anything kind of changed um from your top-down view here in the last couple weeks since we last talked about it yeah, and just to let people know, for those who are clients or are doing the beta test of the knowledge platform right now, um, we put out a notebook every week with everything we're seeing on macro and cyclical macro kind of stuff. So uh, keep an eye out for that because a lot of this information is in there. And as we see new things coming in, we're always putting it in there and commenting on it. Um, but the way that I would classify where we are right now is that things are remarkably good. Um, so the consumer is, is doing fairly well, um, which I think has surprised, um, some market participants, uh, the early data is back from the black Friday period and it's been pretty good. So in-person sales for black Friday, were down mid single digits year over year, 
but online sales were up mid single digits year over year. So in the end, it's sort of a wash. Um, some companies have come out and said that they're seeing you know weakness, especially with lower income consumers. Um, so you're starting to see a little bit of weakness at the margin, a little bit of cracks forming in the consumer, but you're not seeing this sort of wholesale rollover that a lot of people expected in, in response to inflation and shrinking uh, real purchasing power and that sort of thing. Um, construction is really falling off a cliff, um, but other forms of CapEx, especially by businesses, have been remarkably strong. So there was a survey that was done recently, which I thought was really striking, where they asked CEOs of large companies about their expectations. 98% of those who were surveyed said that they expect a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. And yet 86% of them said they were keeping their CapEx budgets, their capital expenditures budgets, either flat or increasing them over the same time period, which is really weird because usually... These surveys follow the cycle. When everyone expects a recession, they all expect, they all cut their their spending. But you're not seeing that. And I think that's a huge difference between this cycle and other cycles that we've seen where businesses are still investing aggressively. And we've talked about this in the past in the sense of, you know, changing technologies. Um, competitive disruption is forcing a lot of businesses to up their game in ways that during previous cycles they didn't have to. Um, and that's going to take a lot of people by surprise who are still using the old playbook of, okay, at the first whiff of weakness, businesses are going to fire everyone and slash their budgets because that's not what we're seeing and it's not what's happening. That's interesting because, I mean, Cousin Marco was on a couple, was it a week weeks ago or maybe a month ago now? And um, one of the things I thought that he said that was most compelling, and he was sort of talking about the Fed and whether they would pivot away from hawkishness, was that... Um, if the Fed hiked too much, then it would drive down CapEx from U.S. companies and you would get into this sort of game of whack-a-mole where you would hike interest rates, but then you wouldn't get the CapEx to fix all the problems <laughs> in the economy. And so then you'd have to lower interest rates, but things wouldn't actually be fixed and you'd get that kind of structural inflation. And I thought that argument was kind of convincing, but you're saying that um, companies aren't cutting CapEx. I mean, I guess the impossible question is at what what rate do interest rates have to be at for the companies you're talking about to say CapEx isn't a good idea? Or maybe to your point, they just see the world completely differently and they recognize it doesn't matter what interest rates are at. We have to, we have to throw down the CapEx if we want to survive going forward. Well, I think that's a really good point. And you know, that's the difference between being just a top-down sort of macro-oriented investor and digging into individual companies, which is what we do all day, because we're not seeing individual companies slashing their CapEx in response to interest rates. Mm -hmm. And if you really look at the balance sheets, like you can see why, because most of the businesses that we look at, especially larger businesses, they have fixed cost debt and they've locked in their durations for an extended period of time. So if you look at the yield curve right now, short-term rates are elevated. The yield curve is increasingly inverted, which means that investors expect rate cuts to follow you know, the inevitable economic weakness. If you're a business and you're trying to, you know, set out a plan for a three to five year period, you know, rate rises really aren't impacting you. You have the capital, you have the money is literally in the bank. Um, so unless there's some major disruption or you expect some major sort of change in, uh, in, in the overall environment, 
you know, you're just not seeing that flow through. And I think a, a lot of this, you know, in, intuitively it makes sense that higher rates lead to lower CapEx because the cost of capital goes up, blah, blah, blah. But that ignores the factor of time. It's sort of like mortgages, right? So mm. there's this concept of sort of the seasoning of a mortgage portfolio where when rates go down, a lot of people lock in low rates and then that um, impacts the the, uh, the the sort of projection when rates go back up. Right. So like mortgage investors talk about this all the time, but it's a similar dynamic with corporates. So like we've had rock bottom rates for years and years. And now, you know, corporates, which usually have like somewhere between a three and seven year duration of debt at any given time, they've locked it in. It's like a household that has a low fixed rate mortgage. Um, so you don't see that that mechanism working the way that you think it might. And, you know, we've talked about how we think rates are likely to be higher than yeah. the consensus assumes. And I think that's a big part of it is like, you're not seeing this squeeze corporate spending as much as you might expect. You're not seeing it squeeze CapEx. You're seeing, you know, sort of lower duration things get hurt, like advertising uh, spending has come off mm -hmm. the boil. Um, inventories are being run down. Construction is falling off a cliff, as we said, but construction is a very different beast because usually you're securing the capital, you're getting the construction loans at the time when you're initiating the project. Yep. Um, so it's a mixed bag, but it's not, you know, a blanket, oh, they're just smothering everything. And I think that's not particularly well understood. Yeah, I mean, and that, I mean, that, like you said, that adds credence to the idea that the Fed has more room to work, maybe, than than the pivot crowd is assuming. And it's not just in the U.S. I mean, we're going to talk about Europe, we're going to talk about Japan, but if you look in both of those places, investment is holding up remarkably well. And a lot of this is about these geopolitical issues that we talk about—the need to replicate supply chains, the need to um, increase capacity, that sort of thing. Hmm. Well, I, I wonder when that will start to percolate into the narrative, but that's that's as good a segue as any um, to go into a little bit on Europe. And uh, I'll let you drive the car here, too, because you um, you uh, were talking about BASF and you want to take a, a shot at the deindustrialization. I'll, I'll call it a myth, this idea that like German deindustrialization is a is a major risk. Like it doesn't seem like it's a it's a thing to me, but I know you wanted to talk about some specifics um, to poke some holes into that argument. Sure. And then I want to ask you about Hungary, too, because I think that's a really yeah, interesting development. They're part of this. Talking about Germany and sort of supply chains that are durable. Um, but I think the conversation that we had internally was around, there was a, a big Financial Times piece that went out this week, which I think is a real good thing to read if you haven't already, because it encapsulates what you refer to as the deindustrialization myth. And a lot of it focused on BASF, the big chemicals company, and sort of what they're saying publicly. And they're basically beating the drum and saying, you know, Germany's losing its competitiveness. We're moving out permanently because, you know, we don't think that we can uh, compete if we're based in Germany, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is kind of a bullshit story, uh, to be perfectly blunt. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, First of all, BASF and companies like that, if you look at what they're doing and what they're saying, in many ways are different things. So BASF, when they first came out, 
uh, a month or two ago and said, oh, we're doing layoffs in Germany and these people are never coming back. And they blamed it on the energy crisis. Well, if you looked at who they're laying off, they're not laying off any production workers. They're laying off IT staff. They're laying off R&D staff. Like, are those people like tied to the energy crisis? No. Um, I think probably they wanted to do these layoffs anyway. And this is an excuse to do that, um, number one. So that's sort of interesting. Um, the other aspect of this is BASF is building an enormous facility in China right now. And that's politically a sensitive thing. So if you look at what they're saying publicly, they're coming out there and saying, hey, you know, Germany, you should shut up, basically. Shut up because you're not competitive and, and you shouldn't be... Um, the, the the CEO of BAS, BASF said, you shouldn't be China bashing. Like, look at yourselves in the mirror. It was effectively what he said. Um, we should be more self-critical, um, which I thought was an interesting deflection <laughs> because I'm sure they're trying to draw attention away from we're building this massive facility in China. China's a growing market. Um, and if you really just look at like some of the other comments they made, it seems like a lot of their beef is more you know, typical European stuff, too much regulation, sluggish growth, you know, just stuff that companies say all the time. Um, the, the counterpoint that a lot of people have made is that Germany has, as you've pointed out, been dealing with high electricity and energy prices for a very long time on a relative basis, and they've thrived nonetheless. And that German competitiveness you know, I think Marco on the podcast was was right when he said, you know, Germans make BMWs. You know, these are high value added goods. They're they're quality goods with very specific supply chains, and you know, you're not. It's not some tiny, no margin, you know, matchbox car that you're that you're manufacturing. Um, and I think that's that's totally right. And a lot of people who watch German industry are making this point, like, yeah, Germany is not going to be. Uh, you know, deindustrialized overnight because of this. It takes a super long time. And if you look at China, people have been talking about Chinese manufacturing getting screwed for five years now, ever since the Trump trade war really blew up. And has anyone been divesting away from China? Really? No, they have not. And the reason given is you just can't replicate the supply chains. You just can't build somewhere else what you've built already in China. And that's way lower down the value add spectrum than Germany is. So just this notion I think is overblown. I won't ramble on and on. Um, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that. No, I, I mean, I do. And I, you know, I've droned on about the, the exaggeration of the European energy crisis and, and specifically how it pertains to Germany. And part of me feels like the media is just recycling old narratives. Like go back and think about you know, the economists declaring Germany the sick man of the euro in the late 1990s. Go back to some of the reforms. Um, I think the, was it the Hartz reforms? I forget who had to do it. Labor market reforms that Germany had to undertake. It feels like at every step along the way, people, like we get a bunch of articles about how, oh, this, this German economic miracle is not going to fly anymore. And then boom, like that's usually when we get kind of another turn to a miracle. But I, I think the more interesting thing there that you put your finger on is this German relationship with China. And in some ways, that's the thing that people aren't talking about enough. And to the extent that they are talking about it, they're talking about it in those ideological terms. Either we have to move away from China or we have to, you know, we have no choice. We're really dependent on China. Um, 
there was an article that I put in the Knowledge Platform this morning um, from Nikkei that was talking to some German government officials talking about how Germany's stockpiles of ammunition, they're super low. And now German ammunition makers can't get cotton linters, which is apparently crucial to making ammunition because all their cotton linters come from China. And the wait time for these cotton linters has gone from three months to nine months. And there's all these bottlenecks in raw material supply. So on the one hand, German industrial military complex, probably a place you want to be looking at here going forward, because I doubt the German government's going to be cool with that. But the other thing is that, um, you know, Germany bet really big on cheap energy from Russia. That bet didn't turn out. But it also bet really big on exporting to China. If you look back at the export figures, I, I pulled them up while you were talking just now. Um, you know, the United States is still Germany's top export destination. It's, it's China's a close number two, but it's the growth that I'm more interested in. If you go back 20 years, um, German exports to the United States have doubled in the last 20 years. Yeah, pretty good, right? Uh, German exports to China over the same time period have more than 10 x I'm not going to do the math, whether it's 12 or 13 or whatever it is, but it's, it's that sort of thing. And German companies, I think, were thinking in terms of, oh, we see China's going to continue to rise. We want to export into that increasingly wealthy Chinese marketplace that maybe now has enough free cash to buy the BMWs and all the specialty products that we made and things like that. And in a best case scenario, maybe we even get some cheap Chinese labor out of it too, because the whole German economic miracle is expand further and further and out and get the supply chain to where you have really motivated workers who you don't have to pay at the same level that you pay German workers, which goes back to your point about BASF layoffs. Uh, it's why when Olaf Scholz was in China a couple of weeks ago and he was taking more of a, a subdued take, I mean, that's why he's, he's the chancellor of Germany. He doesn't have the luxury of sort of doing these ideological things that other members of his cabinet do because they're not the ones who are ultimately going to have responsibility for the German economy. If you are the person who the performance of the German economy is going to be laid at your feet, you sort of have to deal with China, whether you like it or not. He had a big piece also in foreign affairs this week talking about how the multipolar world can't devolve into a bipolar conflict with China and another Cold War and things like that. So um, I think you're exactly right about the sort of there's all these different voices out there that are posturing. Um, and it's important to listen to those voices, but also see what the data is actually telling you and listen to voices on the other side of the argument. But the, the bigger problem that Germany has is they have to make some fundamental decisions about China going forward. Russia's off the table. I don't think Germany's ever going back to depending on Russia. They'll wait for Russia to be weak and collapse and fall apart. And then maybe they'll you know stick their toes into thinking about Russia again. But they're going to they're going to get energy security from somewhere else. I don't know that Germany has made a decision about China. In the same way that the United States has made a firm decision that China is a strategic threat and they need to treat China as a strategic threat. Germany hasn't made that decision yet. Um, and there's a lot of economic incentives for them not to make that decision because of all the bets that they've made. So that that for me is, is the big question um, that nobody's talking about, but which is underscored by what you were looking at. The other thing that we didn't uh, speak about, but which I think is really relevant because it gets to monetary policy, it gets to the ECB, it gets to what the euro is doing, is the issue of wages. So you have to remember, German industry has a very powerful voice. And the fear in Germany is always, oh my God, we're not going to be competitive anymore. We're going to lose our mojo. And they have a big incentive to, to play up those fears all the time. And by... By illustration, look at what happened in the last few weeks. So one of the things that the ECB has been out there saying, oh, we're concerned about is a wage price spiral taking effect in places like Germany where energy costs have been through the roof. And the IG Metal Trade Union, which is sort of the bellwether trade union for German industrial workers, 
came out and a few weeks ago negotiated a wage increase that was well below what people expected or feared, I should say. So they negotiated a 5% wage increase for next year and 3% the year after that, which is really very moderate. Um, but it's just another thing to keep in mind is like German industry is constantly concerned about squeezing wages, um, in, you know, maintaining that productivity advantage. And arguably wages are too low in Germany because if you read, you know, look at sort of the persistent trade surpluses and things like that. Germany has some similarities to China in the sense that companies sort of have um, implied subsidies and, and things like that. Um, but that's not going to go quietly into the night. But you have to watch what these companies do, not what they say, I guess is the, the key takeaway. Yeah, and that's that's one area where I think um, uh, that's true of both countries and of companies in general. So when you're doing geopolitical analysis, you shouldn't ignore what countries say. They're usually trying to frame an argument. But if your entire analysis is based on what somebody is telling you, you're going to make a mistake. That's That was the primary reason I made a mistake about Russia invaded Ukraine. I trusted <laughs> Russian defense and geopolitical and security analysts who were telling me, hey, this is not going to happen. I ignored the massive buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border and thought it was for political purposes. So it's true for companies too. Like Companies want to shape this narrative, um, especially when all of this EU money, helicopter money, if you want to call it, that is up for grabs because the, the EU sees that it needs to make these major changes. Um, that's maybe a good segue to getting into some of the Hungary stuff, though, by way of the oil price cap. Because another thing I would say, I did an interview yesterday um, and uh, I was asked about you know how I felt, um, what the effectiveness of the European sanctions on Russia was. And I, of course, said, well, uh, as, a as a deterrent, they've abjectly failed, didn't prevent Russia from invading Ukraine at all, and hasn't stopped Russia from doing things in Ukraine. Um, and it's also Europe preserved itself. It went after some areas of the Russian economy, but it wanted to at least keep the possibility open that it could get energy supplies and other things that it needed from Russia. And that's part of the reason the, the oil price cap is so interesting to me, because now um, you know, most of the European Union and Germany has said this is they're cool with the oil price cap. They want, you know, they're willing to cap Russian oil at 60 and sort of put the onus on Russia and say, hey, you can sell at 60 a barrel or you can try and find other services for it or you can just kind of sit there and not do anything with your oil. But we're will we think that we can find oil sort of in that bucket. I don't think Germany would have done that nine months ago and they wouldn't be doing it now if the government didn't think eh, like we've made some progress here over the last nine months. So now we can go after oil. I bet we're going to see that happen sort of with natural gas in a year or two timeline as well. Um, but but that gets into Hungary because not everybody agrees about the oil price cap, even if Germany seems behind it. And can you just frame that? And by, by the way, I don't know if there's background noise here, but I share my office with an architectural firm here. So if you hear people talking in, in French behind us, I apologize for that sort of unavoidable. But uh, what I was going to say is for the Hungary issue, can you just frame for... For those who don't have the background, sort of what are the points of contention? What has brought us to this juncture? And then what happens this week? Sure. And I, I'm curious if we have any Hungarian listeners who listen to this podcast and are about to get angry at the things I'm about to say, because I've spent some time in Budapest and thought about Hungary probably more than most out there. Um, at a really, really big level, um, I would say Hungary was the leader of the Eurosceptic camp. If Germany bet big on cheap Russian energy, uh, Hungary bet big on a tighter relationship with Russia and also bet big on the idea that the EU was not going to cohere as a strong sovereign entity and it was going to lead this block of Euroscepticism. Uh, it hasn't gone particularly well. 
um, for the Eurosceptic. It was going well, really, until Russia invaded Ukraine. So in some ways, I think the Orban government was ahead and sort of understood where things were going in an environment where Russia wasn't a threat. But if Russia's a threat, it kind of changes everything. And I was expecting the Hungarian government to have to pivot around that. The other thing here is that Poland was Hungary's other partner in crime. So you've got these governments in Hungary and in Poland that are controversial to the rest of the European Union for reasons related to the rule of law, corruption, things like that. I'm not going to weigh in on whether those concerns are true or not. We can talk about that that over beers other times. But the fact of the matter is the European Union thinks it's a problem. And Western European countries think that the things that um, Hungary and to a lesser extent Poland are doing are illiberal and that Orban himself is this leader of this illiberal democratic faction that threatens the values and the beating ethical heart of the European Union, which gagged me with a spoon, but I'm not going to go on that soapbox either. So that that's kind of the sort of the broad framing. Um, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Hungary has sort of had to been like, well, we were really tight with the Russians. We were, you know, talking about Euroscepticism. We, we never wanted to leave the European Union, but we didn't want it to become more powerful. Like the the winds have turned against us here. And, and for a while, I think Hungary was relatively quiet, um, but they haven't been so much uh, quiet recently. And the things that have happened sort of in the last week or two is the European Commission came out and said, Hungary had made some progress on EU requirements about reforms related to these issues of corruption and illiberal democracy, but not enough. And the European Commission recommendation was that up to, I think, seven or eight billion euros of EU budget funds and recovery funds be denied to Hungary. Um, Hungary was very mad about that and decided, we're recording here on Wednesday, a day earlier than normal, decided yesterday to veto um, EU aid to Ukraine, something in the, it was an 18 billion euro package, I think, of EU aid to Ukraine. Now, European member states are saying, we'll figure it out. If we'd have to do it at a bilateral level, fine. It's just going to take more time and it might be more costly. They, the EU can't do what it wants to, to do with Ukraine without unanimity. Um, but the other big piece here is that um, that's been happening just in the last couple of months is that Hungary is losing Poland because Poland is, you know, more than any other country in the European Union has been talking about the threat of the threat of Russia for a long time. And now these two um, governments that really saw eye to eye at about the EU at the political level, you can go you can go back to the podcast with Jacek to hear the Polish view there are not at all on the same page at the geopolitical level. And the problem for Hungary is Hungary is a relatively small, unimportant country. Poland is one of the larger countries in Eastern Europe, has a significantly larger population. When Poland speaks, it's a much bigger problem. But when it's just Hungary by itself on an island, things get a little dicey. Um, then the last thing I would say, and this, you know, um, my colleague and buddy Ryan Bridges is, is the is the sort of other angel on the on my shoulder here who always tells me that my optimistic views in the European Union are are not looking very good because um, he always tells me if, if the European Union is doing all the things I say it's going to do, it needs to stop messing around with Hungary and it needs to slap Hungary and say, hey, like you don't get to do this. You are threatening like the entire European project here. Either get on board or get out. Um, and the European Union has not really been willing to do that yet. The European Commission talking about withholding some funds from Hungary, you know, up to 8 billion of them. That was the first real, oh, like maybe the European Commission at least has grown a backbone. Will the other um, you know, finance ministers of the European states agree with that and and move against Hungary in that fashion. Um, it sounds like instead of just doing that, instead of the finance ministers approving the European Commission um, proposal to withhold funds, they just kicked it off the agenda for this week. So they're not even going to address it. They're just going to say, eh, like, and the, the, the issue with that for Hungary is if, if they don't make a decision by the end of the year, it's sort of a fait accompli. They won't get the funds is my understanding of it. Although now we're getting into arcane 
EU bureaucratic stuff that I could be wrong about and which we don't need to bore the listeners with. But the the big thing here, I think, is that there were there was a significant block in the European Union that was sort of against EU cohesion and a stronger European Union and was a little more was a little more pragmatic in terms of Russia. Hungary was the leader of that block. It seems that Hungary is continuing to double down on that, but the geopolitical winds around it have changed. And the question is, is the EU going to go after Hungary? Are they going to treat a member state uh, without the kid gloves on? Are they going to be more concerned that if they're harsh towards Hungary, that then other states are going to be like, ugh, like, look, the European Union, this terrible you know, Orwellian uh, dictatorial force that comes in and wants to change our national distinctiveness? Or are people going to look at the EU taking the kids, kids' gloves off with Hungary saying, finally, can we finally stop having this thorn in our side that has been obstructing progress going forward? And maybe we like this. Maybe we need to figure out a way that the majority can do things without a small country gumming things up in the mix. So I probably talked for too long, but that's the lay of the land. So it sounds like this is almost the biggest test of our bullish thesis on EU consolidation really in the last couple of years. Is that making too much of this? I was I was wrestling with that when I was trying to write this up for us this morning. And I, I hesitate to, it, it is a big test, but I also hesitate to say that it's the be all end all. Like if the EU doesn't come down on Hungary in the next couple of weeks, that doesn't mean that thesis is necessarily wrong. It's one bad data point, um, maybe in terms of the European Commission, the European Union. But they also have an incentive in keeping the group together. So if they can figure out a political or diplomatic way forward, that's what they're going to want to do. That's better than having to come down um, with not not military force, but economic force on a misbehaving country like Hungary. Um, so, so yes, it, it is certainly a blow. It would be a blow to our narrative about European cohesion. But this story has also been going on for years. So it's not like this is... All I'm trying to say is, you're right. I just don't want to treat this also as like, this is the be all end all moment. This is a critical moment. This issue is a critical issue and how it gets resolved over a period of years will tell us a lot about the European Union. Um, but it is not sort of the silver bullet or like the, this is not the 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 one moment that is going to change everything forever. It's just one one part of the story as it unfolds. Well, we got to be a little cautious though, because <laughs> having dealt with and, uh, you know, analyzing uh, companies and things for a very long time, and you have a thesis, and over time your thesis changes, and new data comes out. I can't tell you how many times I personally and and the people who work for me have had the experience where we say, "Well, all right, this data point came out, and it wasn't really supportive of the thesis, but uh, it's really, you know." these contingent factors and these contingent factors. And it's really, you know, I don't want to put too much weight on it, um, which isn't to say that that's not the case here, but just rest assured, we're aware of these, these biases when we're trying to be honest and evaluating ourselves. No. And, and it's a fair point. And, but the other thing I'll say here, like if you're trying to put your shoes in the decision makers of somebody in Brussels or even somebody in Berlin or Paris, the other data point that they have to work with here is that even though you had governments in Poland and even more so in Hungary that had issues with the European union over time, um, with a stronger European union over time, if you pull forgive the unintentional pun there, if you poll those populations, the European Union is overwhelmingly popular in Poland. It's very, very popular in Hungary at sort of the national level. So if you, these Eurosceptic governments, um, 
they are Euroskeptic sort of publicly, but if they got blamed by their populations for the reason they got, I mean, in a worst case scenario, kicked out of the EU or didn't get access to those billions of European funds that all the other countries around them are going to get access to, you could also see a significant democratic backlash. So if you're the European Union, you could also see, let's, let's let democracy do its work. Like let's, let's impose some consequences for these countries for doing the things that we think are against what the European Union is going to do. And let's see if they'll elect somebody different, somebody who's willing to play ball. That's a less muscular European Union. It's still one that might actually get us to sort of the same place in the end. But I take your point. Like, like if if you want the EU, if you want to see signals that the EU is really coming to in, into its own in this new geopolitical environment, you want to see them behave differently than they did in the past. You want to see urgency. You want them. You want to see them back up their rhetoric about if if Hungary really is this big challenge to the European project, attack the challenge, do something about it. Stop with just the the press releases and the oh we're going to kick you off the 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 agenda for the meeting this week. Like that's not actually going to do anything. And that might be what Hungary is betting on. Hungary might be betting that, you know, the EU is going to blink first. And, you know, they've been right for for much of the last, uh, over the last decade. I think they've been ahead of the political curve there. It's a little more dangerous now, whether whether they're on the right side of that political curve. And uh, what is the difference between a place like Hungary or even a place like Poland in terms of sort of their butting heads with the EU and what we're seeing in Italy right now, where you had a, uh, you know, a right-wing government come into power and really soften their tone on the EU and, and these sorts of things. Is that simply because the amount of money at stake in Italy is just almost existential? Or what is, how do we think about that? Well, here, the current Hungarian government's um, I don't want to call it pro-Russianness, but they're they're not anti-Russianness. Also poses problems because you do have this sort of center-right um, Italian government. I think we're finally getting Dario to come back in a in a week or two, so I can quiz him on this. But uh, Maloney over in Italy, she does she doesn't like Putin either. There's no law, love lost there with Russia, so there is this kind of fracturing within the countries that would have some common some things in common when it comes to Euroscepticism. When Euroscepticism was really at its peak, like 2015, 2016, and you had Brexit and you had, you know, Hungary and Poland, you know, right shoulder to shoulder, and maybe Italy was going to throw in with them because they had their own problems with the European Union. Like that scenario is sort of no longer there. Um, the issue with Hungary and Poland is more political. It's more about those national governments have done things that the European Union doesn't like. And the European Union is saying, hey, we don't want you to do those things. And it devolves to that political conversation. One thing that um, a Polish official once told me was it's really about they felt like the rules of the game um, were they were sort of weighted in favor of the Western European countries. And what they really wanted was redo the rules, like make sure that all European states sort of have a voice. Poland is this rising power. We want a seat at the table. We don't want to just be told what to do and look down on. Italy has a little bit of that. Um, like before COVID-19, before everybody just decided to ignore sort of EU budget laws, um, you know, the Italians would continually get their their knuckles wrapped for spending above whatever the EU deficit levels were uh, by countries like France, which was violating those same standards themselves. Not at the same rate, but certainly over sort of what the, what the level was established on. And Italy just didn't like that. Um, you can also feel like, I think Italy is worried in the long term, like it's more of a Greece sort of thing. They've gorged on a lot of debt. They've got the second highest debt to GDP ratio. Um, they're worried about whether if, if the chips are down, if there is sort of some economic crisis is Germany really going to help them? Is France really going to help them? Or are they going to try and treat it like Greece and do austerity and all these other things? So there's some common cause there. 
But I think the Italian issue is much more about economics and debt, whereas in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, it was much more about politics and values and things like that. And the the, the peak Euroskeptic moment of the, of the last decade or so was when it looked like maybe those interests could converge into some kind of block. They haven't. They're sort of separate. And the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine r- really prevents that block from emerging. It goes back to, I mean, again, Putin had everything working in Europe that was good for Russian interests. Like all the pieces were doing exactly what he wanted it to do. And now by invading Ukraine and doing this thing, he's actually kind of ruined um, the biggest threat, I think, to European cohesion going forward. Um, Well, that's maybe enough about Europe. Um, As we turn away to look at the rest of the world, um, you want to just check in real fast about China, Rob? There's not a, a ton of, of new information out there, but it's worth just you know saying, hey, China's still there. And I mean, the, the COVID-19 stuff is also relatively scary, I think, in a worst case scenario. Yeah, very scary. Um, and from a market standpoint, this is an interesting week because if you look technically, technically meaning sort of the analysis of the market action itself, this is really the, uh, the test for Chinese equities, because as we mentioned last week, they were so deeply oversold uh, as of six weeks ago. And since then, they've just had this enormous reflex rally. But now they've cleared those oversold levels, and the rally has sort of returned to a level where you would expect it to sputter out in, in, in the case where that downtrend is intact and we're going to resume kind of bleeding out here. Or it would pass the test and, and you're off into a new uptrend. Now, I think the, there's a very high probability that it's the first uh, outcome, just looking at the market, just forget about any of the fundamentals or what's going on. Um, but with that as the backdrop, it's sort of interesting to see there was a big piece in The Economist, which I thought was well done, talking about sort of she being between the rock and the hard place the rock being COVID shutdowns, the hard place being millions potentially of deaths um, and, and all the, the negative impacts that that could have. So um, it's a pretty sobering uh, thing to wake up to. Yeah, the, I think the, the narrative is finally starting to turn away from secret Chinese plan to reopen COVID and like everything's going to be great in the Chinese economy to recognizing that if COVID runs rampant in a country with this many people, with this bad of a healthcare system, what the human cost is going to be. Um, and I, I hope, I hope all of those doomsday scenarios are wrong, um, about how COVID is going to affect China going forward. I will say though, that, um, you're seeing China, the real pivot there is, I think there's an awareness that, um, you know, we can't stop this. Like COVID is now here. It's probably going to become endemic. We've done a good job, but you know, we just, for whatever reason, it's too contagious or, you know, the people have just gotten sick of it. Like we can't continue doing this. Um, China approved four new COVID-19 vaccines for emergency use in the last two days. They are not Western vaccines. They're all Chinese made vaccines, but one of them is the first nasal spray vaccine that's going to be um, used in human populations around the world. And I remember reading um, a couple of weeks ago that, you know, the U S has some of these vaccines in development too. And, and some people like the prospect of nasal spray vaccines, uh, you know, not, not a biologist or anything, but, but, you know, COVID lives like in your sort of mucous membranes, right? Like it's in your nose. So if you can, if you can get less virus there, maybe it's less transmissible over time, but 
the US is the US has taken its foot off of Operation Warp Speed a little bit. We're not approving things and doing things at the at the rate that we're doing things before. And China seems to be making that pivot. So don't underestimate what China can do when it feels threatened. If it feels like the virus is really coming, um, I think they've sort of been complacent for the last couple of years, but maybe they are going to get shots in everybody's arms and maybe they're going to do everything possible and sort of rise to the occasion and limit the human cost as much as possible. But once you once you sort of open Pandora's box, that's the other side of this. Like maybe China's economy gets humming once you get through this, but China hasn't had waves like we have in most of the rest of the world. Like from a Chinese perspective, like COVID really hasn't done any damage. Most people haven't gotten it if, if you kind of believe the data. So it's it's a scary moment. And I don't think that the, that the Chinese government's hand was forced as a cause, should ever have been a cause for much optimism. I guess from an economic standpoint, one thing that I would expect if you do get a reopening scenario when you do get a lot of people getting sick is it's certainly not going to help China's problems of rebalancing back toward the consumer sector and away toward away from fixed investment, government driven spending, um, because almost certainly they're going to try to make up the shortfall in consumer demand and consumer fear with fixed asset investment. And, you know, as we've said, Cato, Cato, the elder, the biggest thing in the world is the Chinese property bubble and, you know, get that out of the way. Um, but assuming that doesn't reaccelerate, which there's no signs yet that it is, that fixed investment is going to take the form of infrastructure. It's going to take the form of things that the government can directly control. And I wonder you're seeing base metals start to rebound, even sort of not uh, financially traded base metals, weird things um, like lead, um, which we track, they've been in a downtrend all year long. And now they're starting to come off the lows. And copper remains remarkably durable, um, for example. So I wonder if Mr. Market is sniffing out that this demand is starting to emerge again. Mm -hmm. In the end, not good for the Chinese economy. And it's hard to know what the property market itself does, you know, in terms of residential property. Um, but all these other things we, we mentioned, the um, solar panel capacity increasing by 150% next year, um, these are huge investments. And it's happening at the same time that companies in, in the US and companies in Europe are making similar infrastructure-oriented and energy-related investments. So that's a potential bottleneck in the making. I will say, too... Um Xi Jinping is supposed to be going to Saudi Arabia either today or tomorrow to meet with the Saudis and sort of with Arab leaders. So if, if you're looking for indications that the, China, that the Chinese government is worried, they're not. And sort of Chinese foreign policy is alive and well. Suddenly she is out there and he's not, you know, their, their officials aren't wearing masks and he's, he's doing the kind of diplomacy that China was doing before COVID. And I'm sure, I'm sure next week we'll have to talk about the China visit to Saudi Arabia because I, th I think it'll be more friendly than Biden's visit there too. And we've talked about that structural shift where Saudi Arabia really doesn't depend on the U.S. anymore from an economic perspective, China and these other Asian countries of the future. Um, and I wonder how that will kind of play in. Um, another one of those Asian countries though, uh, this, this was one of my best segues ever, um, Japan. So why don't I, I know you've been seeing some things that, I mean, you, you always see things that you like in Japan, Rob, but what, what specifically this week um, caught your attention there? Oh, I love Japan. Um, but the thing that did catch my attention was 
So uh, I think it was last week, actually, but the government released the latest data on labor cash earnings. So people's incomes in nominal terms. And that grew 2% year over year. Uh, and that's been pretty steady for the last few months, which doesn't sound like much. But to put that into context, that's the highest rate of growth that Japan has posted in people's income since 1996. Hmm. So compare that, as you pointed out, core inflation in Japan, excluding food, excluding energy, is 2.5%. So that's pretty darn close, and that's pretty good nominal wage growth. So we talk about this a lot, and a, a lot of people are speculating that the Japanese, uh, the Bank of Japan, is likely to tighten policy because they're afraid of inflation. And I just continue to not see that at all. Um, the, the BOJ has been, they want a wage price spiral. That's exactly what they've been trying to engineer for 30 years. And now they're starting to get wage growth that's accelerating and digging in. This is exactly what they want to see. So the notion that they're going to try to nip this in the bud, absent some, you know, really runaway accelerating energy problem is it just seems uh, un implausible to me. Well, and I, I feel like also every week, I mean, this is a, coming at it from the geopolitical angle. I feel like every week I get some new report that the Japanese government is spending more money on military or R&D or something like that. The, the one this week is that Japan is going to raise its defense spending for its five-year budget 2023 to 2027 by 50%. I mean, that, now we're over $300 billion there uh, in sort of U.S. dollar terms. I mean, that's a significant increase in spending. So there's also, you're also getting, I think, this realization from the Japanese government that sort of like Germany, we have to do some things differently here. We have to do some cap capex into these things. And you would expect that also um, to do good things for the Japanese economy and also to drive, I don't know, like inflation is something negative once it gets above a certain rate. But as you said, like Japan is a place that they want inflation, like they've been trying to get inflation and maybe they finally have some structural forces that are, that are going to let all of these policies translate themselves into good things for the Japanese economy. One would think. You know, the other thing uh, just on the fixed investment issue that you bring up is it's pretty interesting when Japan put out its uh, GDP numbers for the Q3 period last week, um, people focused on sort of disappointing growth and there was a, a decline in growth, mostly due to consumption and things like that. But look at the CapEx numbers. Japanese business investment was up 10% year over year. And if you exclude software, it was up 8%, which those are huge numbers. And getting again to this theme of businesses are investing, um, even though you know industrial production in Japan has been coming off the boil pretty hard because mostly because of Chinese weakness um, as a key export uh, destination, that's a really noteworthy thing, and that's exactly what the BOJ wants to see. They want to see Japanese businesses anticipating more demand, building capacity to meet it, and this is on top of the more geopolitically oriented investments like defense or like the new semiconductor um, consortium, which they announced a few weeks ago in partnership with IBM. We didn't even talk about that. But that kind of stuff is really starting to dig in and become meaningful. I don't think I've ever, I certainly haven't asked you this on the podcast, I don't think before, and I don't think we've ever actually talked about it. When, whenever I 
present a more optimistic view on Japan, and even to a certain extent, China, the, the first question I always get is, well, but the demographics are terrible. And actually, I put, a, I put a piece of analysis on the Knowledge Platform this week trying to work through a little bit about why I'm sort of less, I don't, I don't ignore demographics at all, but I'm less focused on them. And for me, they're more about sort of understanding the past rather than being predictive of the future. If you want to think about predicting demographics, just look, like everybody usually quotes the United Nations medium variance for population projection. Have a look at the low and high variance if you're doing demographics research and you'll kind of understand that like the UN's basically telling you this is not something you can predict. Like I looked at the data for China out to the end of the century this year. The high variant is 1.4 billion. The low variant is 500 million. Like that's just like almost a billion people. And like what? Okay, so we're going to just throw a dart in the middle and that's going to be sort of the middle variant. So it's really, really hard to predict demographics. But I mean, Japan's population has literally been shrinking for over 10 years. They don't have immigration as sort of a potential um, way to relieve that pressure the way we do in some parts of the Western world. Like how, how do you think about their demographic situation relative to some of these positive economic things that we're talking about? Because I guess the idea is that there won't be young, young people, there won't be Japanese demand <laughs> for some of these products in general that we're talking about. Well, I guess it depends on if you're talking about from an asset market perspective, like will, can Japanese stocks triple over the next 10 years? Or are you talking about, you know, nominal GDP growth or, you know, I mean, it all depends on how you measure it. I guess here's what I would say. The first is this trope about demographics is very well worn. It's very much in the price and then some for Japan and for Europe. Also, it's the same thing you hear about continental Europe. Um, I, I had a meeting with someone a few weeks ago and he said, well, what are your big you know, theses? And I said, oh, well, we're very bullish on Europe. And he said, debt and demographics. He said, the two Ds, like that was his, his <laughs> motto, right? And um you know, so you can see that these these ideas are just so deeply ingrained now that I don't know if people are really looking at the numbers too carefully. And yes, Japanese population has been declining, and and Europe has not been good either. But you know, U.S. demographics aren't very good either. If you really look at the the sudden change that we've experienced in the last few years, like the birth rates are declining, deaths are on the rise significantly due to drug abuse, due to obesity. Um, we are on the brink of seeing population decline. And that's not a, even about COVID, believe it or not. So I guess the takeaway is these things move slowly, and yet they're also very difficult to predict um, more than five or 10 years out because the factors change significantly. Um, from an asset price perspective and a GDP perspective in Japan, you know, Japan has been dealing with this for a very long time. And you can have demand that's foreign sourced to make up the shortfall if you're an export-oriented nation, which Japan absolutely is. I guess that's the, the macro argument. Um, and especially if you look at Japanese companies, the amount of investment that they've been doing abroad in other areas of Southeast Asia, for example, they're building out capacity um, in a major way. So. No one ever pays attention to the difference between GNP and GDP, which, um, you know, you'd have to go back to your economics textbook, but GNP is basically what are, what are your, your 
company is doing all over the world. It's not just what are they doing in your nation. Mm. And I think that's an interesting observation about Japan is Japanese companies are producing more and more and more value outside of Japan using labor and and other factors from Southeast Asian nations. Um, and that's probably going to continue. So that's a big mitigating factor that gets underplayed. One, um, I guess, call it a thesis that I've been trying out um, a little bit when I'm talking to audiences. And like, if, if I was a graduate student, I would do seven years of a dissertation on this and then produce an answer um, somewhere beyond the you know, point that it's actually relevant. But I've been playing around with this idea that in the con- in a in a world where we're globalizing, where the trajectory is towards more globalization, um, probably growth is the thing to look at, and it's the countries that have not yet enjoyed those periods of growth or wealth creation that are going to have the most upside because you would think that comparative advantage, you can make things cheaper here or in this, you know, this country is going to, we saw it in Asia with South Korea and Taiwan and the Asian tigers and all that other sort of thing. And that if we really are transitioning to this multipolar world that I'm talking about, we go less and we're away, we're going away from globalization. Maybe we're even deglobalizing to a certain extent. It's not about growth in emerging markets. It's actually, are there wealth centers and power centers that have already accumulated a certain degree of wealth and power? And those are the places in multipolar environments that will actually do well. Um, So it's not about, you know, what's the next frontier market where we're going to put a bunch of new labor or new factories and build things in that sense. It's about what are the countries that are in a good position today and can take advantage of some of these things that aren't going to be just free trade and globalization. Like I said, I haven't I haven't done the work yet. It would probably take years to really build that into an ironclad thesis. But it's one of the things I've been thinking about. And it goes to your point about Japan, because Japan has lots of problems. It's one of the wealthiest places in the entire world. Like they, they are starting from a much higher position than most other countries are. The biggest problem with China from, from a demographics perspective is that yes, Japan and China both have shrinking populations or soon to be shrinking populations. Japan's very, very wealthy on a per capita basis relative to China. So even if Japan has bad headline growth figures, like most Japanese people should be okay. If you're looking at the per capita level, whereas China didn't get there. That's why we have to talk about redistributing a lot of wealth in China because some people are very wealthy, some people are very poor, and suddenly globalization is not going to be there to lift all the boats that didn't get um, lifted in the last period. So I don't know if I don't know if you want to pick holes in that or if that rings true to you, but it's it's one idea that I've been noodling with in my head. No, I'd, I'd have to really think about that because that's a that's a big a big issue. I think it illustrates a bigger point, which is that. In an era where globalization goes away, you need to uh, rely more on um, sort of moving and taking advantage of internal resources. And what I mean is, look at the countries that have gotten rich in the last 50 to 70 years. Even in the era of globalization, the biggest miracles have been those countries that have focused on utilizing internal resources most effectively and and protecting their infant industries there there have been no sort of textbook cases of globalization where i mean maybe with some small examples of small nations but no big nation has just been like yeah let's go free trade and we're going to go from botswana to japan levels of income it just hasn't happened and the countries that have done successfully there have been japan china and korea and all of them were fastidious about 
disciplining their internal industries about erecting barriers so that they could slowly and methodically move up the value chain and more than anything about using internal capital. And there's something about those East Asian models that I think enabled this where they could, um, they could uh, sort of extract capital from households through various forms of repression on the promise that, hey, we're all going to be rich if we do this. Like, there's a brighter future. Um, and that wasn't, you know, hey, we're going to export capital from the United States. We're going to export capital from Europe. For, for whatever reason, that just hasn't been very successful in making countries go from a very low level to getting to the technological frontier. So the countries who have been able to do that successfully, I think, are still positioned to do well. Um, but you're seeing, I think, getting to your point about like who's going to do well and who's not, like the company, the countries that can replicate that model as best they can and sort of rely on their native resources, native capital, who can who can sort of mirror in some way how Japan got rich. I think are going to be the best positioned rather than the ones that are trying to be open um, and, and hitch themselves to the globalization train, which has already left the station. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I can't really think of a country that's trying to be uniformly open. Um, I mean, India is sort of the, the leading candidate for next in the, in the economic growth miracle, but they're starting from a very low base. They're being very, very protectionist and self-reliant in general, and they don't have that kind of discipline that you're talking about. Their problem has always been everybody knows what the problems are in India for years. It's not about what the problems are. It's that nobody's been able to fix it. <laughs> they can't build the infrastructure. They can't put in the regulations that actually uh, make people think that they can scale up there. Um, but in some ways, what you're saying actually challenges what I'm saying, because I would have thought that there were examples of countries that did well during globalization. I mean, Taiwan is the one that, that makes the most sense to me. But to your point, that's a small nation. It's pretty hard to replicate um, Taiwan's very unique constellation of not really existing as a country, but having very close ties to Silicon Valley right at the beginning of the sort of tech digital revolution in the United States, next to its threat in China that really, you know, until the last couple of years, wasn't willing to challenge the status quo. Like it, it was a very idiosyncratic way of of kind of developing, but I would think Taiwan is the example of a country that hits ditch, hitched its wagon to globalization, and now that globalization is turning around, um, is up the creek without a paddle, as I like to say. Yeah, I think that's right. Taiwan is a tricky one because it's small. It was very specialized, and there's also weird spillover effects between the mainland and Taiwan that make it fairly unique. You know, usually you don't see that much flow in terms of people and human capital, at least in recent years, you know? Yeah. Although it also gets to the point of, you know, finding those in between areas that can exist in different spheres of influence is, is probably another place of opportunity. It's one of the reasons we like Turkey so much, like in the way Turkey behaves, it's got its, you know, feet in the NATO bucket. It's, it's dealing with Russia on a pragmatic basis. It's friendly with China, despite the Uyghur situation. Like, um, Singapore is an example of a smaller nation, which seems to be able to to play sort of all sides and soak up interest from all sides. That, that's maybe also a model going forward. But um, we've been going for an hour, so we should probably let the people get back to whatever they want to be doing. Rob, any, any closing thoughts? I think next week we'll maybe tackle some Brazil and, and maybe even some biodiesel, renewable diesel thoughts. But anything else we, we missed before we say goodbye? No, I don't think so. I'm looking forward to the biodiesel. 
yeah, I've, I've been doing a lot. I, I still haven't, at least I know what I'm talking about now, but I, I haven't decided which way to go. I, I actually also just thought of one last thing. We don't have enough information to talk about it, but this news that Iran might be disbanding a morality piece, police, which looks like it was maybe a little exaggerated, but that the Iranian government is considering modifications to or getting rid of the, the requirement to wear a hijab for women in public. Um, that's a big fucking deal if that actually happens. The previous government, the Rouhani government, had a whole committee thinking about the hijab issue. And that's a pretty major concession if it goes that route. It's a little too early to say that that's what's happening. Um, but just continue to keep a close eye on Iran. Um, it's it's more than any other country kind of going forward the next six to 12 months, uh, one where I think you could see major political change. Not to go down this rabbit hole, because I know we're finishing up here, but that gets to what we were talking about last week about true revolutions emerging when there's signs of, you know, the regime attempting to reform, when there's uh, sort of open questions about the direction of the country. And like, I would assume that if they are indeed doing that, that increases the probability that things will accelerate rather than mollify uh, the reformist elements and, and calm things down. I think it will have the opposite effect. What do you think? You would think so. I mean, um, Yes, that's generally how it works, and that's especially how it works in the Middle East. A great example of this is Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Uh, at the beginning of the Arab Spring, he tried to do a very sort of lukewarm. He didn't want to crush crush the protesters like his like his daddy Hafez did, or was was want to do when he was challenged, when his regime was challenged. And what you got was the Syrian civil war and um, you know a real challenge to Assad. And he probably only survives because the Russians came in and gave him the military support to keep him power. Um, and I think he learned his lesson. Like Syria, Syria's cracked down now on dissenters in a much more serious way. So there's plenty of evidence to indicate that yes, if if you're an authoritarian regime and you go soft on these kind of challenges, that you will actually embolden opposition, uh, not placate it. But again, it's um, it's too early quite yet to say that. But it's it's it was an interesting little blip on the radar, I think. Um, so with that, I can hear, I can hear my mother-in-law's dog is starting to yap because I got to go take care of it and take it for a walk. So why don't we say goodbye and until next week, cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.